today's episode of Vice Versa, we're talking about the new Audi e-tron GT, Lucid claiming they're ahead of the tech race, Tesla buying Bitcoin, and much more. And as usual, I'm joined by Ricky Roy. How you doing, Ricky? Good, Matt. Good. It's been a good week. I haven't finished my video for the week yet for my main channel, but it'll be on Lucid and kind of the truth about them. I've heard a lot of grumblings about the company, so I thought I'd kind of dive into it a little further. How about you? What's going on? I just, I just released a video on geothermal energy, which is, not to make a bad pun, a really deep dive on geothermal energy. <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't resist myself. Uh, it's it's an interesting topic. It's it's not as clear cut as you might think, which was what fascinated, fascinated me about it. Absolutely. We'll have links to, to it all in the description if you guys want to check it out. But yes. So let's jump right into it and talk about our first story. And that is, of course, that Audi has unveiled the 2022 e-tron GT. So they had the e-tron, of course, and this is the grand touring version, if you will. And if it looks familiar to you, and it's a pretty good looking car here in black, it should look familiar to you because it's actually based on the Taycan. Audi, uh, Audi and VW, Porsche, they're all, you know, the parent company of Volks Volkswagen, so they get to share from the parts bin. And this is going to be based on that platform. And uh, I should probably just kind of point out, just visually, it looks fantastic here in these pictures. I actually first saw it over here <laughs> in white, <laughs> which looks terrible. I don't know why, but this car looks like a joke almost. It doesn't even look like a car that is ready for production in white. Maybe I, maybe I just need time to get used to it. I think they borrowed from the Audi uh, R8 kind of multi-dual tone kind of stuff, the the door pillar here, it just, it all looks a little bit bizarre. But if you're going to get one, definitely check out the darker <laughs> colors because this looks fantastic, I think. The the pricing is going to come in, kind of look at this. These are some great pictures. Ionity. That's nice. Showing off kind of there. Europe. Yeah. yeah. And um, so the pricing is going to be very similar to Porsche territory as well. Coming in around, let's just jump to the pricing here. So they're going to have three variants, kind of again, Taycan-like. The Quattro Premium Plus starts right at $100,000. The e-tron GT Quattro Prestige jumps that up to $107,000. And the e-tron GT RS, which is their performance line, takes it all the way to about $139,000. So again, remember, Porsche doesn't make a lot of these, so you're going to get the full federal tax credit. Although, stay tuned, that might also apply for Tesla and some others as well. But... Um, one thing I'm going to hold off, uh, if it's okay with you, Matt, until another story I have later in this episode about yeah. their range. They're claiming the range is going to be around 230 to 238, 232 miles for this car. But I actually have a little bit of data on this from the Taycan and a report. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But a really good-looking car in black. Don't get it in white, I guess. And um <laughs> You know, it, it might be for you, it might not be for you, but at least we have another option in that grand touring space. And there's not many. The, the Model S comes to mind. The Lucid Air is a grand tour. I think it falls right in that category. What do you think, Matt? You getting one? I knew. <laughs> I, I, it's funny. You're just, the, everybody's going to see that the first three stories, kind of like there's a, a theme that kind of goes to the first three stories. They kind of all interlink. My impression is the same as yours. It's I, I thought it was a gorgeous car when it, all the, dark images look fantastic and i think it's a beautiful car you know it's going to be well built you know it's going to be very luxurious but for me the part that kind of shocked me was the, the price of a hundred thousand dollars and not to do the spec war kind of a thing because it's not completely apples to apples with the model s 
but for $20,000 less, you're getting a car that has more range and is faster. And then if you step up to the Plaid Plus, which is the same cost as the high-end <laughs> Audi, it just smokes it even further. It's like the gap just gets wider. And so it's just one of those on the spec side, it's kind of like, hmm. So we'll talk more about the range issue later, like you said. But the whole idea of, and also in the next story, the idea of efficiency being the main part of the story where you should only care about EVs that have really good efficiency, I think is probably kind of a false narrative that we shouldn't focus on too much. Because like when I tried the, the Porsche Taycan, it's not a car I would buy for myself, but for Porsche fans, it is like the perfect car. It's like, it is pure Porsche. It's spectacular. It doesn't have the range of a Model S, but it has good enough range. And the audience that wants to buy that car probably isn't super concerned about the efficiency. I think it's the same thing here. I think the Audi fans are going to love this car and they're not going to care that it doesn't have quite the same efficiency as a uh, Model S. So I think it's a slightly different audience, which we'll get to in a little bit. If you jump back to my screen, this is a picture of the interior. And I think for people who have seen the Model S refresh, this I think will be the, the thing that sticks with people. You either love the new Model S refresh, which is very minimalistic and modern with the yoke steering wheel, or you want a classic Audi. And that's what this is here. So yep. Yep. depending on what you're looking for, this might or might not be for you. But I can't help but feel like this car potentially had a kind of a, a grand entrance, if you will, until Tesla's Model S event at their earnings call. Yeah. And maybe they didn't see this coming. And that's kind of the, the nature of always playing catch-up is you think you got something until you realize it. And, I mean, forget the Plaid Plus, which I think is going to, it'll obliterate almost anything out there. So it's yeah. a tough game to get into, but I think if you rest on your laurels of being a good car brand as far as fit and finish, and you're not going to see very many of these, as many as Tesla, so exclusivity maybe depending on what's what's in it for you uh this might be a good car yeah. but i'm yeah. with you I, I need to know more about the full self the, the self-driving package and everything else but i still maintain having more options is good for everybody because there's some guy with that kind of money to burn who's not buying a tesla who sees this and goes yeah finally exactly i'm, I'm on board and we need that so it doesn't have to outsell a model s for it to be a success so it's that's the that's the porsche it's not outselling the model s but it's it's the best seller they got, so it, they can they can win, and so can Tesla. It does one person doesn't have to lose for the other person to win. So it's like it's not completely apples to apples. And again, from a business perspective, they're sharing the platform here, so this is going to be a very lucrative car. They're going to make a lot of money on this, and yeah. that's what these car makers have to do to get off the gas car. They have to see how much profit margin there is in EVs. So this is be big. For yeah. Them. So to jump over to the next story which does have a relation to this. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Lucid CEO giving an interview where he basically came out and said that they're ahead of the tech race, even in front of Tesla, which I thought was kind of amusing until you kind of heard his point of view when he was talking about this. He was basically saying from fit and finish, from the way the cars are designed and the technologies that are in the cars, they're, he doesn't see Tesla as a main competitor. He sees the Mercedes S-Class as a main competitor, which in one regard you could say is kind of like throwing a little shade at Tesla because Tesla's still kind of in that same price point. But there's the whole is issue of 
as you pointed out, the interior design is radically different from a traditional luxury car. And there are people that look for a very specific thing in their luxury cars, and the Model S may not tick those boxes for everybody. So they wouldn't even consider a Model S as a true luxury car. This, the Lucid Air is going to be talking to that audience. So in that regard, I thought he wasn't completely off the mark, but his whole concept of they're even ahead of the tech race, I thought was really kind of pushing it when you think about maybe pre <laughs> Model S refresh, it would have carried a little more weight, but with the Model S refresh and what's coming with the Plaid Plus, I just don't buy it on top of the full self-driving that Tesla's coming out with. It's, it seemed like a very strange thing for him to claim. Now, the one thing, one of the reasons I was really excited to talk about this story, especially with you, is you've actually seen one of these in person. I have not. So it's like, I'm curious what your thoughts are around the car. Yeah, I mentioned my next episode on my channel is going to be about Lucid. And I saw that interview that you're talking about. Um, I didn't, yeah, I, he did kind of mention that we're in front of the tech race. But to me, it didn't feel like they were showing, throwing shade at Tesla. I think he was just really talking about how they're really an engineering-driven company, just like Tesla yeah, is. Yeah. Nothing like other companies like Nikola Motors, who, uh, just a little fun fact in, in the interest of my research, what I'm doing for my video, Lucid has one car. If you're an engineer at Lucid, you're working on one product. First of all, that's a good thing. Focus. And they have 1,400 employees and growing. They have a lot of new job, job openings for various positions and stuff. In comparison, Nikola has like 300 employees for everything from like a Beechcraft to an ATV to a jet ski. <laughs> Who knows what else, right? Not a, good, not a good look. It shows you what the companies are up to. And these guys have been quietly kind of building this for a while. Um, he, they mentioned the Lucid Air has a watt hour per mile efficiency of like 4.57, which is wickedly good. It's really it good. way better than the Model S it used to be. Yeah. Um, but I do think Tesla, if you look at their slides, and this is where competition for me is great, but yep. they kind of had this one-up mentality because the drag coefficient of the new Model S, which has the Model 3 kind of front fairings under the turn markers in the front for lower drag, and it feeds the air, especially high-speed air, up and around through the through the wheel wells. The drag coefficient of the new Model S is way improved, and that's how you get better range, less battery pack size for the for the base long range model s and so as far as like their benefit and advantage there i'm not so sure the only thing i can really think about now is they have an incredibly compact entire system so like motor the the, the transmission the the gearbox if you will the inverter the entire package that they have is incredibly small um tesla doesn't ha hasn't really shown us much in in that regard but there is some advanced tech there as far as the better yeah. than Tesla stuff. I think that is that's playing into the fanboy wars, and I don't personally think that's a valuable thing to do. But really cool tech is coming out of Lucid, and you can thank Lucid for a lot of what we saw with the Model S because they basically had the air in their sights and all the way down to the numbers and the Laguna Seca laps, which they knew that the air had completed, and all the way through the range of 520 miles. That's not a coincidence. The air is 517, right? So. The bold claims, but the company is doing big things. And I think this is going to be a really big year for, for Lucid. Yeah. But my, my one nitpick on him saying that comment, because I, I watched the full video interview too, is just you could, what he said is, in my opinion, completely true when you look at him compared to every other auto manufacturer that's out there. But the one company where it's a, 
kind of a questionable claim is Tesla. It's like those two companies seem to be kind of trying to one-up each other and what they can do. And as a blanket statement, it seems false on its face because there's aspects of they don't have a full self-driving stack like what Tesla is working on. So to say that they're beating in the technology race, it's like to be a little more specific, it would be maybe they're beating them in the technology race around the efficiency of their motors, the efficiency of their battery technologies. That may be true, but as far as like a blanket statement, it was kind of like a kind of raise an eyebrow when he, when he mentioned that. Yeah, fair enough. I, I agree. I, I think it's best not to bring up that sort of yeah. of argument. But you got to remember that there's a small guy. Um, so any headlines and news is good. I guess. Yeah. The next one is the story that I have been thinking about all week. <laughs> and that is that <laughs> it's it's really not it's not as bad as as you think probably. Yeah. Um, that Tesla range estimates are being called into question by independent tests. Now this one, uh, Matt, you have a Tesla Model Three. I do too. This one might either. Um, you might agree with this, or you might have questions, or this might seem pretty obvious to you. But I have a Tesla Model 3, and I have never gotten my claimed range. When I first took delivery of the car, so here's here's a list of some of the cars that we're, we're talking about. And we'll talk about the Porsche Taycan, the Audi here in a second. But if you look, there's a trend. The Teslas tend to get, here's like negative 10%, negative 9%. So the Model 3 performance, which is my car, they claim a range of 310 miles, and people are saying they're getting closer to 256, which that sounds about right to me, now, which is negative 17%. And that cars like the Taycan have the opposite, where they get way better range than they're claiming. So, for example, the Taycan 4S, uh, their EPA rate, rating is 203 miles. And I was just in a little bit of a Twitter war before the show about this, whereas in reality, they're getting 320. And I think I mentioned this to you, but I fully charged live. I had the opportunity to drive a Taycan and in in Texas. And that was our, exactly our findings. Is I was thinking, pull over, we got to charge. He's like, no, there's like half a charge left, and we got all the way to from like Houston to Austin. We drove over 200, 330 miles and had no problems. So I think what's happening here is you have to remember how EPA ratings are established. First and foremost, we have to remember that. There's city and highway, uh, city and highway uh, ratings. So typically with gas cars, we would have that broken out. It'd be 22 city, 28 highway. Tesla doesn't have that on their website. They have a number. So first and foremost, you can think to yourself, they're picking a, a sweet spot because the reality is the faster you go, the less your range will be because what ends up winning out over 50 miles an hour is going to be your aerodynamic drag, which is going to be the, the range killer. So... Maybe what they're doing is kind of finding a sweet spot between city and highway. But really, Tesla, if you're watching, I actually think you'd do your fans a much better service if you broke it out, just like they do for gas cars and had like 350-mile city and 290 highway. Because the reality is I have done 8,000-mile road trips in 2020, and I just did one last week because my parents live in the Bay Area. It's about 500 miles one way. And I'll tell you, when I'm going 80 miles an hour, like 85, there's some areas in the five where there's literally nothing. It's like a straight road for 200 miles. And you'll do like 85. Your range will get devoured. A full charge goes from 300 miles to 200 miles really quickly at like 85 miles an hour. Yeah. So first and foremost, I think Tesla should break it out and say city and highway. Because if you, like, for example, just drive around town 
it doesn't really matter. You're not complaining about this problem. But if, you, if you're doing road trips and you're driving on the freeway a lot and you're never getting your rated uh, numbers, that might be a problem. The second thing too, and Tesla's actually taken measures to, to combat this, is your wheels are a major source of, of, um, of air drag. So I have my Performance Model 3, which has 20-inch wheels, which I've never liked because I feel like I can crack them at any time. So on these road trips I've been taking, I average 284 watt-hours per mile. You'll like this, Matt. With my new aero wheels, which I'll show you guys pictures on Twitter or something, uh, that is down to 262. So a 10%, 8% improvement. Mm -hmm. And that extra range got me closer to where I need to be. Still not what Tesla's uh, ratings are, but huge difference. So if you notice on Tesla's website now, the Model S, even if you got a fast plaid version, they come with the aero wheels and you can upgrade to the crazy bonker 22 inch wheels if you want. But the reason I think they're doing that is they want to get that range. And the best way to do it is have really aerodynamic wheels. Yeah. All right, I'll stop. <laughs> I was gonna say, I'm the same boat with my Model 3. I've never hit the, the what they estimated. When I got my car brand new, it was supposed to be 310. The closest I got was I think 307. And then it very quickly dropped That's below. Great. It dropped below 300 like almost instantly. So I think it was like one charge was 307 and the next one was 301. And then it was very quickly under 300. And I put out a video a little over a year ago about how badly my battery degraded in the first year, year and a half. It was a significant drop. And I used Teslify and stats to follow my battery health. And on the bell curve of battery health, I was very much in the low end of the battery curve of that bell curve. So it's like I knew I was kind of like an odd man out with what I was seeing, but it still didn't freak me out because I have plenty of range to get where I want to go. The, it, the, the degradation slowed down dramatically and kind of leveled off. And then with software updates, it actually got a little bit better. And so it's kind of like I'm not panicked about it. I'm not worried about it. Obsessing over, you know, 310 versus, oh, I'm getting 291 or 295. It doesn't matter too much. And at the end of the day, it doesn't affect how often I have to stop and charge when I'm driving to go visit my parents in upstate New York. It's like it doesn't change where I'm going to stop and eat and charge up. So it doesn't affect me at all. But the fact that Tesla is so aggressive on their EPA estimates and they're they're on that knife's edge of right where probably it's kind of the cutoff, where everybody else seems to play it very conservative so that it actually ends up from a user experience point of view you end up as a happy customer because you're like, oh, I think I'm going to get 260 and you end up getting 280, 290. You're like, yeah, that's awesome. Where when you're a Tesla owner, it's like, I'm going to get three. No, I'm not getting 310. What's going on with this? To me, it's it's a negative user experience because you're setting up false expectations. You're never going to hit it. You're just not going to hit it unless you drive in 70 degree weather and you drive at very specific, you know, speeds and in a very like, not lead foot fashion. It's like you're never, ever going to hit those things. So it's like in regular driving, you're always going to be lower than their estimates. And to me, as a user experience designer, <laughs> that drives me nuts. It's like, why don't they just drop those estimates just a little bit, play a little conservative? I mean, we've talked about how Tesla has gotten much better about uh, under-promising and over-delivering. It's like, to me, this is another one of those. They could just under-promise a little bit and over-deliver on that range. But it seems like they're playing awesome. it the other way. You know, one of the one of the people on Twitter who, when I was getting into this little feud, talking about the the Audi range. So, by the way, people with the who are looking at the Audi, um, wait until people do test drives. I can guarantee you, it's going to go well over three hundred miles um, with a ninety four kilowatt hour battery pack. And above. it's going to be bigger. Yeah. 
Uh, maybe even better than the Tycon, which, you know, it isn't kind of the next iteration of it. Maybe they've molded some things out. Um, yeah, exactly. The gentleman mentioned that the Germans are are famous for under-promising and over-delivering. For, for years, like BMW M5s, they'd have a stated like 380 horsepower, 500 horsepower. And it was always more than that. So they kind of they kind of set you here. And then when you get at home and you're thinking, this is way faster than I thought it would be, you're happy. Whereas for me, I was driven to buy new rims and tires because I was really disappointed with the range. And when I drive like I do, I drive a lot. Um, the wheels that my car came with were no bueno. Like I was, I had to get rid of them because I always felt like I could, I could crack them on a pothole or something. So I agree, under promise, over deliver. And they have been doing a better job of that in general. I think their EPA range stuff uh, they need to, and some people have mentioned like any friction, rain, snow, cold mm-hmm. weather, that range is going to dip like uh, 25%. I'm yeah. talking about being unhappy in California. It was 70 <laughs> degrees yesterday when I was driving around. I couldn't even imagine what it means, must be like for you if, you know, it's 20 degrees out. My range takes a 25, 30% hit. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's night and day. Oh, really quick. One last thing. If you can look at my screen, I just pulled up Teslab, which is a really cool company that we've probably both worked with. Um, mm-hmm. it, it has really good de- uh, deep data into your car. So here is some just front page stuff. Here's the Model S, the Model 3, the Model X, and the Model Y. The big blue percentages are the percent of their fleet, not a big deal. The average trip is around 15 kilometers. And look at these efficiencies. The Model S was 71. The Model X, the, their older stuff was 69. And then the Model Y and 3 are much better at 78 and 77. But that means... Even here, you're getting three quarters of the range that you're being promised. So yep. that is thousands of cars. And like you might have an anecdotal story about, oh, I get this. That's good for you. But this is the data from thousands of people and thousands of trips. Yep. So really, I would urge Tesla to, to fix it. Because when people are thinking, oh, I'll get the standard range. I don't need all that extra driving. And then this happens. And then it's cold out. And then they're getting 100 miles. That's not what you want. Exactly. It's like uh, my brother worked at Apple and he always got mad when Apple would sell like the 8 megabyte of RAM iMac or like the 128 gigabyte storage iMac. Some grandma's going to buy this, be full like within two weeks and hate their Mac. Don't do that. Yeah. Sell them a product that they're going to enjoy. Don't sell those models where, yeah, it's a similar thing. Make sure that people get what they want. I think long term, these are great, amazing cars. Like, we want to make sure that people have that like optimism instead of I'm not getting that range. What's going on? Agreed completely. This one I thought was just kind of an interesting, out of the normal range of what we typically talk about. There's a Nigerian startup called Brake Cloud that is making an electric SUV that's going to be designed and hopefully built in uh, Nigeria. It's a very interesting looking truck. I mean, you can see it right here. Um, Has solar panels on the roof. And the reason I, I thought this was an interesting story to talk about is because typically when we're talking about all these EVs, we're talking about EVs that are selling like hotcakes in North America. They're selling like hotcakes in, you know, Europe and China now. And, you know, even India and other countries are starting to kind of ramp up. But Africa seems to be kind of just this big no man's land because it's 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 not a big motorized com- uh, country. I mean, a, a continent right now. It's like most countries don't have a lot of car sales at all right now. And this article that talks about this, um, this startup brings up the point of, a lot of African countries have leapfrogged in different kinds of technologies. So like countries like uh, Nigeria and Morocco and Ghana, 
they kind of leapfrogged in the telecom. They didn't have very much like landlines for phones, and but then they became pretty much ubiquitous with wireless really fast because when they started to build out, they didn't have an old infrastructure they were upgrading. They're starting from scratch. And it's the same thing here. They're not a big motorized, big motorized companies, countries right now, but they could become that way. And so it's interesting to see a, not only a just investment in EVs in a African country, but a homegrown EV company. And in the article, they bring up how <laughs> there are a lot of manufacturing in Africa from VW just opened a bunch of plants in Kenya, Ghana, but they're making ice cars. They're not making EVs, which is so backwards. Um, in South Africa, you have Toyota, Mercedes, Ford, Nissan, and VW. Once again, they're all making ICE vehicles, which is, once again, very backwards. Hyundai is one of the few ones that's coming in there, and they're building a plant in Ethiopia that's going to be making EVs in an African country. So we need more investment like this around the world, where it's not just being building cars in the United States and shipping them around the world, like what Tesla's basically been doing up until these new plants they've been building. We need more EV makers to be planting roots in a, in a, on a continent like Africa, which is most likely at some point going to kind of just leapfrog, where they'll kind of just leapfrog over ice and go straight to EV, which is something we should all want. So it's, I, I just thought this was an interesting story because it's, it's something we typically don't talk about. It's something we typically don't see. What do you think? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, and put on the board as well. I liked your telecom analogy. In the article at the very beginning, they also mentioned the the banking. You know, so banks think, oh, no, nobody has banks accounts. We're not really going to try to open up a lot of banks and bring in like financial infrastructure for the country. But when mobile phones come along, suddenly people are banking with like WeChat and um, all these different mobile platforms, you know, the Squares and Venmos and all these types of things. And suddenly like there's a whole new level of banking and transactional access that they never, they never had before. And it's done wonders for them. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of a funny thing. I think people have neglected Africa because a lot of the cars that they have in Africa are secondhand European cars, for example. Mm -hmm. So they've had their full life. They have 100,000 to 300,000 kilometers and then they get sold and driven around in Africa. It's kind of similar where a lot of cars from the US and buses, especially make it down in Mexico after their life. It's just, it's kind of how the game has been played. But the reality is if you can kind of skip ahead, like you mentioned, and, and, and be on the, the cutting front of this, suddenly you might find yourself a whole new customer base. And we've talked about this before. With We talked about the Acons building uh, Wakanda yeah. story a couple of episodes ago. But this is a good thing. We need more customers. We need when the world modernizes, everybody wins. Um, one thing that's interesting, though, the, the one thing that's going to hold them back a little bit is large parts of Africa don't have electricity even. So mm -hmm. we're talking about. 20 kilowatt charging, <laughs> very, very hard on a, on a power grid. So there's a lot of infrastructure there uh, that they need to work on. But talk about a kick in the pants to kind of modernize. This could be it, especially if we're talking about new EV plants that are going to be coming out of there. So let's hope that um, it does bode really well for them. And also that truck you showed a picture of, it has solar panels on the roof. How yeah. cool is that now? If you're driving like 20, 30 miles-ish for your yeah. normal life, and you just leave your car out. It's a very sunny place. And you could just kind of drive in infinitely. That, yeah. I think, is incredibly key. And that might be how they get their, their footing. Your gas car is not going to charge itself sitting there when you're inside. But yeah. your EV might. Yeah. I thought it was a fun story. Yeah. So next up is a story that we 
we, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, and that is that <laughs> Tesla is um, actually buying Bitcoin. So in a recent 10K filing with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, Tesla announced that they purchased $1.5 billion in Bitcoin. I think it actually didn't do their stock any favors. Um, their stock has been in, in a little bit of a downward trend, trading around $800 a share right now with the news. But I think long term, it's actually going to be, it's going to prove to be a pretty good move. Uh, the, the article kind of mentions that Elon's been kind of pumping up Bitcoin and Dogecoin, which are the two meme coins that he's been kind of talking about. But that doesn't mean that there isn't like serious weight to the decision as well. Um, pe- people kind of think of this as kind of one of those funny things that Elon does. But you got to remember that Tesla is increasingly an international company. And international business is, is interesting and, and difficult because you're building a new factory somewhere. What is, should we go and convert our USD to that currency now? Do we think they're going to go up or down? We're paying for costs and the, the, the cost can change if, you know, you're building your factory and it costs 10000 or $10 million, but then the currency in that country skyrockets or plummets or whatever the case might be. It can be hard to forecast. So a international currency like Bitcoin can be really cool, especially when you talk about taking deliveries of new Teslas from owners. So if I'm buying a new Tesla and I live in, Africa or China, and I can buy with Bitcoin, that really kind of skirts around all those kinds of international monetary issues. So for the future and and for how they uh, plan to grow from here, I think it's an interesting move. And I actually have never talked to you, Matt, about Bitcoin. So I don't actually know where you stand. <laughs> but if you're wondering where I am, I'm very bullish on Bitcoin. And I have been for a, a little while. I'm not going to lie when the 2017 bubble kind of burst and the prices came down, I did I did kind of sell off a lot of it because at that point, I didn't have the certainty. There's not like time in all the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so now we've seen Bitcoin beat around for about 10 years. And in that time, um, it has proven to be solid. There are some sad things like 20% of all Bitcoins right now are unaccounted for, meaning people lost their public mm-hmm. keys or their their wallets. So they can't even access it. So it's, it's rough around the edges. It's not an easy coin to deal with, even just getting in the exchanges and buying and holding and like hardware wallets and stuff. But I think there's a good move. And my prediction is the next five years, the price of Bitcoin is going to skyrocket and a lot of companies are going to do the exact same thing. Yeah, this I was looking forward to talking to you about this because I know how cryptocurrencies work. I understand the underlying technologies and wh- how it's designed and why it works the way it does. I understand that. But I've always been like really dubious. So when this news came out, it was just like it kind of spun my head around of like, wait, what? Like, because I never looked at it as something. There's only one major company that's actually kind of gone. Was it Square that did this? I can't remember which company it was a finance company that yeah. uh, put yeah. someone. Yeah. yeah. I never thought most companies would want to do this because it's such a volatile thing. The the values of these cryptocurrencies, especially the the small ones like Dogecoin, it's like really risky to, to jump in there right now. <laughs> I don't think people, like, companies are buying Dogecoin. I know, but it's like Bitcoin's been around forever. It's the first one. So it's like that one's probably the most stable of all of them. But I had never thought that a company would want to do this. And so when they did it, it kind of spun my head around, which got me looking back into it again. And I had never, ever bought any of it. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to buy some Bitcoin. So I just recently bought some Bitcoin and experienced what it's like to buy. And it's an awful experience trying to get into this because the exchanges 
and the hoops you have to jump through to get cash into it, uh, having to prove who you are and send scans of your driver's license and do all this crazy stuff on these exchanges. It's like, are you, are you kidding? I just want to buy some Bitcoin. I understand they have to do that for regulations like in the United States and things like that, but it's, it's not a great user experience. And if it's ever going to become kind of like one of the global de facto standards, that experience has to get better than it currently is. But looking at the history of the value of Bitcoin over the past even just a couple of years, it's it's not, it doesn't seem that much more volatile than <laughs> real world fiat currencies. So it's like it, it to me, it seems like maybe this is kind of the future of things. And I, it's really cool to see Tesla really not just going in a little bit, but with one point five billion dollars, they're really like dropping the mic and saying, we think this is the future where we can sell cars in India for, you know, Bitcoin. We could sell them around the world and it helps make things easier. And it, it's also just an investment opportunity. As Bitcoin goes up, that 1.5 billion is just going to grow. So it's it's so, <laughs> once again, Tesla's first principles thinking, thinking outside the box. This is not a normal way you invest money at a company. I agree with you that if this does start to look good for Tesla over the next year or so, I think you're going to start to see a flood of other tech companies doing the same exact thing. And then it's just going to become kind of a normal business practice to invest a certain amount of your, your cash on hand into cryptocurrencies. Maybe not Dogecoin, but into something. But it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like, I've been dubious, but now I'm starting to kind of like look at it a little more seriously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The couple of things, just depending on where our audience is in terms of like understanding some of this stuff. The first thing about Bitcoin is it's deflationary. That means there's 21 million coins that ever will be mined. We're, we're not quite there. We have a few more years until they're all mined. At that point, there's no more. So unlike the U.S. dollar, which the Federal Reserve keeps printing more of, and it keeps like taking the value of the dollars that we currently have because of inflation, this is the opposite. The values will keep getting higher. So what will happen is there's such a scarcity that you'll buy an Apple today for 0. 0.0001 Bitcoin, but... In 10 years, you'll buy an Apple for 0. 0.000000001 Bitcoin, right? It's going to be smaller and smaller fractions of it. Um, so that's where companies kind of see the writing on the wall, you know, ha- keeping money in cash in the U.S. currency scares people, especially people who are more libertarian-oriented uh, in terms of their political views because they think you keep printing money like this, um, interest rates are zero, and they have been for so long. What's that going to do to the prices of, of anything? Um, I haven't seen prices go up a whole lot in every regard. Gas prices are on the way up again, probably for you as well. I know they were cheap for a while in the summertime, but they're going up now. For me, though, here in California, real estate. If you have a million dollars in U.S. dollars and you you think you're just going to sit on it, um, what you'll find is that million-dollar house you can afford today isn't going to be the million-dollar house you can afford 10 years from now. So I think this is a way to hedge it. So the reason why that matters is this is more of a storage medium. This isn't like your transactional. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna make money and a hundred times a day. And, you know, trade. And, no, this is like this is my money. This is my mattress. I'm storing it in Bitcoin, <laughs> yeah. and I'll trade and transact with the U.S. dollars in a smaller bank account. But like my long-term storage. Think of it like that, I guess. Which is you kind of have to because it is not easy to deal with right now, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating topic. It's going to be it interesting. Is. We, could, we could talk about this a lot. I think we need to do like a vice versa after hours. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely interesting. Yeah. Well, the next story and the last story, Vestas takes GE's world's largest offshore wind turbine title. 
this one you added to the list. I thought this was a fascinating <laughs> story because this thing is massive. This picture of it does not, you, the sense of scale for these, yeah. that if you look at the top of that turbine right there, it's like a person would be a little speck on the top of that turbine. This thing is a 15 megawatt turbine that has a 774 foot or 236 meter diameter. Just let that sink in. This is like over two football fields in diameter. That's how big these things are. Absurd. It's insane. And the amount of power that this thing can generate, the 15 megawatts, um, they had some interesting specs in here for, I think I jotted it down. The yearly output for this thing is going to be the equivalent of being able to power 20,000 European homes. <laughs> it's going to be the equivalent of taking, the amount of pollution it will take out of the atmosphere is 25,000 passenger cars. And the first prototype of this is going to be installed in 2022, and they're expected to hit like series production in 2024. So it's still a couple years away. But this thing is just absolutely astonishing. And it's just, it to me, it just shows there's still growth potential for just continuing to improve this technology for offshore wind and just how much potential there is to harvest energy for any regions that can do this. I just can't, it's hard to wrap my head around the size and scope of these things. I did a video on this on wind turbines a while back. And one of the big things you often hear about these is like the effects on wildlife and the effects on killing birds, which is true, but it's always overblown when you consider the number of birds that die just from flying into buildings dwarfs the number of birds that are killed by turbines. And just painting a turbine's blade black, just one blade black has a dramatic impact on the number of birds that are killed. It is a huge improvement. So there's there's ways that we can mitigate these issues. Recycling, there's still work to be done there, but there is progress being made. And the fact that they can make a single turbine this massive <laughs> and generating this much power is just incredible. Yeah, the, the scale of it is hard to even imagine. I kind of wish... yeah. You got to Google these the pictures of some of these in in production. These offshore turbines, they're just gargantuan. And part of the thing is that these really benefit from kind of the economy of that scale. If you have a bunch of small wind turbines, that's that's okay. That the blade got to spin faster. But with this, you can have that thing might barely even be moving. You might be thinking, oh, I thought it seems windy, but the thing's barely even moving. That's actually way more efficient. You don't want to have high speed, which the friction and the losses increase. So really what you want to be able to do is have something just barely humming along with a huge reduction set that takes but, that output. But it actually is still going at like 126 miles an hour. Yeah. I mean, so it, it looks like it's, it's slow, it's, but it's actually, it's cranking. It's going faster yeah, the than the highway. <laughs> yeah, the angular velocity translates when you have a, when you have a football field sized uh, yeah. blade, but yeah, yeah. exactly, and and also for the for the wildlife aspect, the, the slower the blades are going, the better off you are there. But the end result of these massive things, and uh, it's something that you got to just behold. I, I think when COVID's over, we want to do a little Scandinavian trip, and there's some massive offshore uh, turbines out there, and maybe do a little cruise or something. But you have to really have some kind of a scale to appreciate it. But um, and and by the way, the 50 megawatt output is the equivalent of if my house has about five kilowatt of solar 3,000 homes in one of these things i mean it's just a massive massive thing so 
really cool. I'm glad to see that we're we're working on every aspect of this and continue to improve, like you mentioned. Like we're not there yet. Like it's not like solar is done and like we're at the end game. And same thing goes for for wind turbines. The engineering is massive. Dude. Could you imagine trying to make those blades that'll last and all the deflection and the wind shear and not just completely rip apart? Um, it's got to be an amazing engineering challenge. Yeah, that's it's one of the things I love about this this kind of technology. It's when when humans put our minds to something, the things that we're capable of doing are just like it makes it. I'm in awe that we can build something at this size and scale and it works and it will last for yeah. 20, 20 plus years out in the middle of the ocean. It's like, that's insane. It's so, it's so incredible. Yeah. All the salt water and talk about a harsh environment the wind. Yeah. That's a brutal place to be engineering things to last, but yeah, here we are. So thanks so much for watching and for listening. And if you think we've earned it, be sure to subscribe and watch us every Thursday night at 5 PM Pacific, 8 PM Eastern or listen on the go by listening to the podcast, which you can find at viceversa.show. It would be really helpful if you could also rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks again to everyone, and we'll see you in the next one.